Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. In today's podcast, I talk to Professor Sam Tamimi, who is a consultant child psychiatrist in the National Health Service in the UK, as well as a professor of child psychiatry and mental health improvement at the University of Lincoln, UK. He has published over 130 articles, tens of chapters and five books relating to mental health and childhood. In today's podcast, which is part one, we talk about the dangers of pathologizing and biologizing childhood through psychiatric diagnosis and labeling for mental health. We also begin the discussion on ADHD. Professor Tamimi explains how the manufacturing of ADHD has come about, how there is no characteristic genetic abnormality, how brain imaging studies have not uncovered any specific characteristic abnormality, nor characteristic chemical imbalance associated with ADHD. In part two, we look deeper into these and examine an alternative narrative that is scientific. Let's begin the podcast. Wow, I am sitting in the studio with one of my heroes, Dr. Sam Tamimi, a child psychiatrist who is, has, you have been my mentor for years without you even knowing it. I have read so many of your, most, I think just about everything you've ever written, listened to everything you've ever spoken on YouTube. You have such an incredibly brilliant and simple way of explaining truth when it comes to mental health. And it's an absolute privilege to be interviewing you today and to have you join me. So thank you and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. There's no better person to do it than you. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a privilege to be interviewed by you. Thank you so much. Well, Samuel, do you mind just giving my my listeners and viewers a background to who you are, what you do, and how you've come to really challenge the current bioreductionistic and biomedical model? So, and then we'll dive into deep into a little bit about your books and ADHD, and that'll just be interview number one. We're going to have you on the show a lot more. Okay, thank you. Well, I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist. I work in the UK in the National Health Service. I've done a variety of jobs over the year, outpatients, inpatients. I work with young people, with their families, and also with uh, wider community. I also do a fair amount of teaching and writing and, and, and lecturing and trying to help with developing service models that go beyond the current failed service models that are dominant in the mental health industry. And for me, one of the key things that is behind the repeated failures, certainly at a population level, to improve outcomes for people with mental distress. In fact, we seem mental health services seem to be very good at the opposite of alleviating distress. It seems to be better at creating more long-term patients. At least that's what the data tells us. There might be many reasons behind that. But it certainly can't be argued that as things stand, the mental health services and the paradigms that they use have led to an improved well-being in the populations that have developed large amount of mental health services. And I think one of the central issues 
that is related to these repeated findings of poor outcomes. And by the way, it's not just people who've been asking questions, fundamental questions about the nature of the ideologies we use in mental health services. But I think this is widely recognized even within institutional psychiatry now, that there's a big gap between what we should be expecting from increasing the amount of uptake of mental health services, whether that's through medication or psychotherapeutic approaches, and the established findings that don't seem to be getting any better outcomes. In fact, we're having more people who are classified as having chronic conditions, who are classified as disabled due to mental health conditions, and even um, distressingly a reduction in the lifespan of those particularly who get classified as having severe or recurrent mental health problems. So I think this is widely acknowledged. The standard response by what you might think of as institutional or mainstream representatives, whether these come from organizations like the Royal College of Psychiatrists, which is the organization that I'm part of, or the American Psychiatric Association, or the whole variety of representative institutions, seems to be a a kind of, to me, it feels like a rather juvenile, repetitive, perseverative response that the reason we're having such poor outcomes is that we're not funded adequately. If you're simply putting more funds into a system that doesn't work, all that will happen is that you will create more of the problems that have already been created. And the problems go quite deep because we have a population, particularly in Western countries, that have now been cultured into a narrative that says that when you experience various types of mental distress, that these are the results of conditions that are identifiable in the same way that medical, other medical conditions, established medical conditions are identifiable. And furthermore, if you don't intervene early, as for example, you might think of with cancer, if you don't intervene early, it will result in further problems down the line. But this way of thinking presupposes that the ways of operating that we find in general medicine or the paradigms that are used in general medicine are simply exportable wholesale into the area of mental health or mental distress, mental well-being. This is a very problematic proposition. If you're hearing this, you've probably taken supplements at some point in your life. You're probably taking them right now. We all know that our bodies need them, but you've never been able to identify exactly what your body needs. Let's face it, most people don't get all the nutrients they need through food alone. I've personally spent a lot of money over the years on supplements to address this issue, but it's never felt like an exact science. How do I know precisely what my body needs and how do I align that with my evolving physical and mental health goals? Wouldn't you like to feel confident that the supplements delivered to your doorstep are tailored to your unique nutrition and metabolic profile? This is why I love 
ELO, which uses a combination of at-home blood biomarker testing, Apple Health data, and dietitian support to determine exactly the right supplements just for you, and delivers them every month to your door in convenient daily packets. They take the guesswork out of finding the right supplements by taking into account your blood biomarker values, health history, and wellness goals to determine the optimal supplement formulation just for you. Indeed, they've combed over the latest scientific literature so you don't have to. Each supplement in your packet is custom dosed based on your unique profile and underpinned by a firm foundation of science. Plus, ELO evolves your daily supplement packet as your goals and needs change. Every ELO member is paired with a registered dietitian for ongoing support and supplement recalibration. I also love that ELO supplements are third-party tested so you can feel confident that what you see on the nutrition label is what you get in your daily packets. It's time to start taking supplements that are tailored to you. Get your free blood biomarker test a $200 value by going to elo.health and entering the code DRLEAF. That's elo.health and enter the code DRLEAF for a free blood biomarker test. The link and details will be in the show notes. Keep going because I want you to use this time because people need to hear you. They've heard me a lot and you're just brilliant how you explain it. I've got so many notes and things here. So if I need to prompt you, I will, but I don't think I will. So you just go ahead. It's fantastic. Before going into why a wholesale export of this technical paradigm that has been successful in many branches of medicine, I think it is worth pointing out that when you explain the problems of exporting that paradigm into psychiatry and psychology, this is not to say that the paradigms we use in general medicine are without problems. Mm. There are problems across healthcare, and there is the whole issue of getting absorbed with the, the, the kind of glamorous, almost sexy side of having discoveries and technical innovations. But the fact is that for the rest of med- medical practice, there is an empirical anchor a starting point through which to develop a categorization. In the times that before we had those empirical anchors, which helped us understand what was happening at a pathological, a cellular, a physiological level, medicine used to struggle with the same issues that, Mm -hmm. uh, or not the same, but some similar issues that psychiatry struggles with now. So without having a system for classifying that was based on some empirical anchor, we used to have all sorts of crazy things going on in general medicine, from thinking that post-operative infections were due to something called biasma. This is the idea that there was something in the air that so that they would have all the windows open and the patients would freeze to death in septic shock to using leeches to bloodletting to so when when you don't have an empirical anchor it's it's you start you, you find so as medicine began to get empirical anchors for a lot of the presentations that it was dealing with from the discovery of bacteria and hygienic methods to discovery of different types of cellular pathology to a better understanding of you know cardiovascular 
gastrointestinal, etc., etc., medicine was able to move towards what we now recognized as a diagnostic system. And it is important to appreciate that diagnosis is a particular system of classification. Now, we, we routinely classify all sorts of things. It's one of the ways that helps us navigate our way through the world. Language is a system of classification. Mm-hmm. I don't want to explain to you when I'm in a traffic jam that I'm in a series of cars, that they're all lining up against the traffic lights, nothing is moving. I would just say I'm in a traffic jam. It's just a simple example of, so we classify all sorts of phenomena, but there are different types of classification that we use for different purposes. What has happened in medicine is a diagnostic classification has emerged because understanding at least the proximal cause, the initial cause of a patient's suffering helps you to understand what sort of particular treatments and interventions may address that specific cause. So a diagnosis is a classification by cause. That is why when we talk about diagnostics, we can also talk about it in other settings. So car mechanics often talk about getting the car in for diagnostics at least in this country they do mm-hmm. you know when you, there's you something well. mm. yeah when there's something wrong with the car that nobody quite understands what what the reason is for because diagnosis is a classification by explanation at least proximal explanation so it enables you as you have these empirical anchors to start to build a framework of knowledge based around a technical understanding. That system of classification definitely works at its best with acute presentations. Presentations at the accident, what you call the emergency rooms, we call the accident emergency departments. Mm. You know, somebody who's had, a, who's had some, been involved in some sort of accident, there's a swelling in their leg, they can't wait there on it. They come into the accident emergency department and they get an X-ray and it appears that one of their bones in their leg it has got a fracture. Now you have a link between the proximal reason for that person not being able to wait there for having that pain and having that swelling in their leg. And now you know what you need to treat and you can start building your knowledge using scientific principles. You can start running investigations for different types of treatments, for recovery times, for complications, for different things that might result in you being more likely to have an accident. So you can start going into the social aspects, maybe even the psychological aspects, but you still have an empirical anchor, which means Mm -hmm. that when you come into the accident emergency room, a diagnosis is key to knowing what you need in terms of your urgent treatment. Things get a bit more fluid when you get into other conditions that maybe don't present in that acute way. So, for example, diabetes may present over a longer period of time, may present with nonspecific symptoms, 
prone to infections, fatigue, sometimes without even the, the classic symptoms. Mm. But you would not define diabetes by a description of symptoms or experiences. You define diabetes by blood sugar that is considered too high. And that will make a big difference to the type of treatment because the treatment then targets the bringing the blood sugar down. Now, there is an understanding with diabetes about what the proximal cause is, but there is a whole lot of other things to do with diabetes and understanding more distal causes. There are debates about what the boundaries should be, about when you should just try dietary approaches, when you should involve medication, about long-term consequences, complications, the psychosocial issues related to it. There are racial disparities that, uh, that, that might come in that need to be. So the technical framework isn't sufficient to understand all the different aspects. Mm. And a psychiatry that was better developed and better embedded in understanding these problems could be of great assistance to the rest of medicine that has to deal with these psychosocial issues and these complexities that go beyond the diagnosis and treatment. But the fact still remains that there is an empirical anchor that when you present to the doctor with feelings of fatigue and maybe prone, being prone to infection, the doctor does not just jump to the conclusion, oh, that is diabetes. They have to bring forward evidence that's independent, sorry, independent to their subjective opinion in order to support this hypothesis that it might be diagnosed, uh, might be a diagnosis of diabetes that is behind these experiences. But actually, there might be several other conditions and diabetes itself might not present in that way. So again, you have this empirical anchor. And you can go on to things get even more fluid when you have various neurological presentations. And there may well be some neurological conditions that we haven't yet quite understood how to detect or how to. But there is a big difference between somebody who experiences headaches, you know, that, that sort of pain in the head and trying to understand that and trying to and somebody who is then classified as having a condition, a something that is referred to as a diagnosis of, for example, depression. Because when you come to trying to define depression, unlike, say, trying to define diabetes or the fracture in the leg, you have no empirical anchor. Mm -hmm. All you have to define it is a description. So it is a description of people's experiences. So people explain mm. how they feel, and you put together a hypothesis related to the idea that the reason that they feel that way is because they have this condition called depression. Now note that we are still using that diagnostic terminology when we think in those ways. So we do often, in if you're using the 
current standardized approach and, and mainstream approach to diagnosis in psychiatry, you would say that the reason you feel that way is because mm-hmm. you have this condition called depression. Mm-hmm. But this way of using a description as the cause of itself is what philosophically is known as a tautology. Mm-hmm. In other words, this is a peculiar form of circular thinking. It's the equivalent of saying that your low mood is caused by depression is the equivalent of saying that the pain in your head is is caused by a headache. The experience doesn't cause itself. Mm -hmm. And this is what happens when we don't have an empirical anchor. Now, please be aware that in explaining this, I am not dismissing the distress of the people who will get this label. What I am trying to point out is that when you start putting the same paradigm with the implications that come with that paradigm, and you start calling certain experiences as diagnostic, you're imposing a way of thinking onto an experience rather than discovering it. Mm. If we were to practice the rest of medicine in this way, if you had a cough and you went to your doctor because you're experiencing a cough for the last few weeks, the doctor would not be able to do anything such as listen to your chest, do a peak flow meter, maybe order a chest x-ray, take a sputum sample, and all the different things that you might do to try and understand the proximal cause of that cough. They would talk to you, they would elicit, they would take how many symptoms you have, and then they would say to you, you've got a recurrent cough disorder. They would just stick the word disorder after it. So a description is not diagnostic. So psychiatry has built this idea that what we have are diagnoses, but they are not diagnoses. Mm -hmm. To me, this is not an opinion. I don't think I am saying anything that is an opinion here. No, you're saying you're stating fact that's scientific. Mm -hmm. Simple fact Mm -hmm. about an understanding of what diagnosis means how it is applied in practice, and why what we call in, uh, diagnosis in psychiatry is not diagnosis. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So important. So uh, that's why I wanted you to dive into this, because it's, that is, is not understood. At all, you know, people just—they—they they are so trained in the biomedical model, and the, the marriage between medicine and mental health has blurred the, li- the lines have been so blurred. So, and, and it does, as you say, limits because you're imposing something on someone. So, I thank you for explaining that. That's please carry on. So, there are quite a few important implications to try and understand if we get drawn into, and you know, the, the general public have been drawn into this way of thinking because we have plenty of people who are considered to be expert, 
who have been promoting this way of thinking. Mm-hmm. I, I'll just give you one one example of that in the UK. There was an understanding back in the early late nineteen eighties, early nineteen nineties, that the general public were not very keen on taking the medications that have been misnamed antidepressants. So the Royal College of Psychiatrists in this country, together with the Royal College of General Practitioners, which is your primary care doctors, launched a campaign called Defeat Depression. The raison d'etre behind that campaign was that the public needed to be educated to understand that depression is an illness, like any other illness, that there are treatments available. And the success of the campaign was that the prescribing of antidepressants increased enormously and has continued to increase since then. Those who looked at outcomes found that outcomes hadn't shifted at all. If you look at the Beyond Blue project, which was the equivalent public education and doctor education program in Australia, there is some interesting data about that because they had a separate team that did monitor outcomes over the course of a couple of decades. And they came to the interesting conclusion that when it came to depression, that the general public appeared to have become much more convinced by the argument that depression is a disease and that it might be caused by some sort of chemical imbalance. But the outcomes not only hadn't improved, they had got worse. And the group with the best outcomes were those that rejected the medical model and rejected the idea of needing to take medication. So these things don't just have harmless consequences. There is a consequence Mm -hmm. to the model that you set out to sell to people and to explain to them. The way I think about psychology and psychiatry in general, and in fact, what you might call the mind, and we have lots of different words, that it's hard to know, are they equivalents or are they different? We, we sometimes use the psych, the soul, yeah. mm-hmm. the mind, the brain. Are these different? Are these equivalents? It is that there is very little that you can say about what we call the mind, perhaps beyond its, its need to make sense. There is a meaning-making function that always seems to be in operation. Mm. But beyond that, there is what I think of as a big black box that we actually don't really know in the same way that we know a bit about how the heart functions, how the kidney functions. We don't really know or understand what happens between inputs that we have from our environments, from the things that happen to us, from our histories, from our cultural context, our political and the outputs, the bit in between, how we then behave, how we then experience. But all we have essentially are models. We use various models. And I 
think of it as models with consequences. So the model we use to try and make sense of what's happening in between is not inconsequential. It has very profound consequences for how we then make sense of the experiences we're having. So if you are experiencing distressing emotions, uncomfortable emotions, things that we would broadly term as suffering, Mm -hmm. if you experience that for, for a variety of reasons, we have now made available in the mental health infused I think of it as a fetishization almost of mental health and the idea of mental health. We have made available a way of interpreting that as being something that could be a sign that there is something going wrong, something beyond your ability to withstand, Mm -hmm. something that you need to intervene in early enough to try and shift, to try and change, to try and improve. This relates in in many ways to one of the perhaps unanticipated or anticipated in terms of pharmaceutical companies and maybe some of the psychotherapies of the what I think of as the commodification yeah. of emotions, the turning of emotions into potential avenues to make profit, to make money. But what it means for For people, and of course with me working with young people in particular, is that from an early stage in your life, not just yourself, but potentially your parents, not through any fault of theirs, but because of this public awareness type Mm -hmm. campaigns, teachers and other people who are genuinely interested in your welfare become concerned about you feeling a certain way or demonstrating your feelings in a certain way or behaving in a certain Mm. way, concerned that you may be in the grips of some medical condition that requires expertise beyond the expertise of the people around you, of compassion of community of of all of the things that you know we've used as human beings for millennia and my concern then is one of the i think unfortunate consequences of using this framework you know framework with mm-hmm. consequences where you're imposing a certain meaning rather than discovering the meaning is that you're potentially setting the person up for a potential, not inevitable, but potential lifelong struggle with a, with a belief that there's yeah. a part of yourself that is in some way abnormal, lacking, broken, not quite right. And that this part of yourself, just like with you know diabetes, you have to try, the treatment is to try and bring the blood sugar down. Mm -hmm. There's an idea that you need some sort of external interventions to reduce or even better take away these distressing feelings or these uncomfortable feelings. And 
you're kind of setting yourself up for for that potential lifelong struggle with a sense that you have to keep working to suppress this mm. side of yourself which pops up every now and then you know so so that when you have reactions to life circumstances to life struggle it might bring you back to the sense that there's this is that side of you yeah. that broken that abnormal that chemical imbalance whatever mm-hmm. side of you that dysfunctional side that needs to be go back and find a way to suppress it again mm. and maybe and i think it short circuits totally the process of being human the process of being human and the process of growing up and growing up yeah sort of pathologizing grow up you cannot grow up without, without experiencing suffering how can you know happiness without experiencing sadness? sadness yeah how can you know contentment without having to have struggles mm. you know growing up is is tough and it's very and tough it's tough in certain cultures and and it's i think pretty tough in a culture that is very concerned with the compare and compete neoliberalism we yeah. have a group of young people who have been pathologized at rates that has never happened before the evidence that that's happening is all around us there was a a survey in 2019 pre-pandemic and of course since pandemic we've been talking about this pandemic amongst young people in particular but pre-pandemic 1000 young people in the UK surveyed just for their opinions about mental health and nearly 70% of young people believed they have or have had a mental disorder and of those nearly 2/3 believed that it was mental health awareness campaigns that had led them to understand that now a lot of these people were viewing this as an important breakthrough in self understanding but i see that as really really it's a kind of a propaganda i mean everything is propaganda to to some extent because we're dealing with 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 belief systems we're not because it lacks this empirical anchor it becomes to me a bit like you know reading your star signs the things are so so cloaked in subjectiveness that it's hard if you are struggling not to see these things reflected in some of these very vague in practice i just regularly come across people and parents who've been looking these things up on the internet this is exactly me this is what i'm feeling i think i might have this condition that seems to me an incredibly disempowering thing to do that uh, and and also it sort of fits in with for me a move from seeing human beings in terms of it's almost like the modern equivalent of the original sin theory we're all vulnerable life is is full of dangers and we're all vulnerable to these mental health conditions the idea that that we can withstand and find our resilience and i'm not talking here about the idea that all suffering is 
is something to be valorized or romanticized. But suffering is part of something to do with being human, and it's also sometimes a sign of something that is being opposed upon us in our environment, some things we can change, some things we can't. But to impose a a meaning on them as something that's going on wrong with you. In themselves as an individual, yeah, is frightening. There's nothing worse than going to a doctor's appointment expecting to be the center of attention and then your doctor seems like they have better things to do and better places to be. Instead of listening to you intently, asking how you feel and helping you along, the doctor is checking the clock. On ZocDoc, you'll find quality doctors who focus on you, listen to you and prioritize your care. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, are available when you need them, and treat almost every condition under the sun. When you're not feeling your best and just trying to hold it together, finding great care shouldn't take up all your energy. And that's where ZocDoc comes in. Using their free app that millions of users rely on, you can find the right doctor that meets your needs and fits your schedule. Book an appointment with a few taps in their app and start feeling better, faster with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com leaf and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash leaf, ZocDoc.com slash leaf. The link and details will be in the show notes. So many truth that you're saying then you know you mentioned things like the mcdonaldization i can't even say that word of mm. mental health and especially when it um, i would just love to transition a little bit over to how this is playing out and impacting the consequences of this model on adhd and you, know, you and i actually are around about the same age because I, I know i know how old you are and i know that i was studying in the 80s as well and we were told this whole dsm4 just come out so the whole adhd thing had started and we had a professor that said to us this is a problem and thank goodness this professor was saying the right thing that this in 30 Mm. 40 years time we're going to have a major the wrong kind of epidemic on our hands because we're taking away the meaning and all those things that you talk about so it was yet i watched in my trajectory as a clinician over 30 of over i've been in the field 38 years now 20 i practiced for 25 i saw Mm. this thing change and that's why i've transitioned to writing books and developing this flat platform so we can help people understand there's another narrative here. But the point being there is that ADHD, there's so many areas I want to cover, but I'd love us just for this part one of our interview, we're going to have you back a, a many more times, hopefully, and I'd love to just transition over to the consequences in ADHD. You know, you talk about in chapter three of your book, Insane Medicine, which is an outstanding book, which we'll put the link in the show notes, recommend this to everyone, the manufacture of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Sammy, I get asked this question, I do conferences all around the world, I'm talking everywhere to thousands of people all the time, and I get asked this question almost daily, and this is a population that, uh, children backing was a huge part of my practice, but I would never use the word ADHD at that stage, but that's the language mm. that people understand. You mm. make a very good point, you make so many good points, I have so many comments here, but I'm just going to throw out three things. In this manufacture, that's a massively important word that I'd love you to focus on why you've chosen that. And then the fact that you show, you know, evidence-based medicine requires, you know, proving the null hypothesis to be wrong. And the fact Mm -hmm. that we have the whole thing that ADHD is genetic, that it can be seen in the brain, and that it's from a chemical imbalance is not even science. 
So we've got this manufactured yeah. thing that has no scientific foundation, but it is changing kids' lives and millions, mm. not just a few. So mm. let, me, let me hand that over to you now. I know you can run with us in multiple directions. So, and I know this is very close to your heart. So The whole area of ADHD was probably the starting point for me for when I became more and more suspicious about what is behind what are the, the, the assumptions that are structuring these, well, they're not diagnoses, these so-called diagnoses yeah. that we are viewing as legitimate? And, it, uh, and this goes back to when I was a trainee in child psychiatry. And in the UK, there wasn't that much interest. This was in the early to mid-90s. There wasn't that much interest. We used to have the condition of hyperkinetic, which was a much rarer. And, you know, in my first couple of years in child psychiatry, I hadn't come across anybody who'd been diagnosed with a hyperkinetic syndrome. It was just not something that was part of the lexicon. But there was more and more coming about ADHD uh, as the, you know, better replacement for for hyperkinetic and that hyperkinetic was not a really and the, I moved to be under the tutelage of a consultant who was interested in this and he wanted to carry out a bit of research with our local population this was in a part of East London which is quite ethnically diverse uh, he asked me to so he wanted to look at you know the, the kind of issues to do with ethnic diversity and prevalence and so on. So as was the tradition at the time when he asked me to be involved, I was very keen and he asked me then to go and do the background literature search. So off I uh, trundled and in those days we didn't have the sophisticated, but we, could, do, we, could, we could get librarians to help us and, yeah. and, I, and I got this. And microfish and all those of, things. Yes, yes, exactly. So I got this wadge of papers, you know, of reviews. Of, there was something that just kept troubling me. So I was reading paper after paper, nearly all of them from the States, that was talking about prevalence figures, types of presentations, prognosis, treatments. And I kept just asking myself, yeah, yeah, but what is it? Are you telling me it's just these behaviors? But how do you know that these are behaviors that are, first of all, problematic? Because most of the behaviors that seem to be being described seem to me as reasonably common behaviors particularly amongst young boys. Mm -hmm. In fact, a lot of them, I think my parents would have easily applied to myself, you know. <laughs> there must be something more. I must be missing something. And eventually I realized I wasn't missing anything, but I'd ask the fundamental question that no, none of these papers were asking. Mm -hmm. Where is your starting point? You have started with an assumption, an assumption, that these are behaviors that are indicative of some sort of medical condition. Eventually, it goes on to be called a neurodevelopmental, so a specific condition to do with the development of the nervous system. Right, yeah. And that this is that, that you have a, a way of categorizing 
these people that is independent of their history, independent of their context, and that can be made through simply either asking questions or very occasionally, but mostly just asking questions, and not of the person who's meant to be suffering, but of people who are trying to care for that person, mm-hmm. but and occasionally some observation. And that this will lead to a group that you can put together as a legitimate group that share something characteristic in common that means you can build that technical knowledge that we were discussing earlier, yeah, earlier on. Mm-hmm. is behind when you have. But I think you can only really start building that sort of technical knowledge if you have some sort of empirical anchor that exactly. takes you at least somewhere beyond just the subjectivity of the person who's so it it struck me immediately that there was something strange about mm-hmm. a diagnosis which was totally dependent on a description and that these descriptions all started with the words often <laughs> so when you look at the things that are that are talked about as symptoms yeah. they're not symptoms they're behaviors their behaviors so the things they all start with the word often so how do you define what does that often? even mean <laughs> yeah. and most of them then also describe something subjective so often squirms or fidgets in their seat so what's a unit of fidget and you know has it be 1 minute 10 minutes how often does it happen is there a difference between how many fidgets a 5-year-old should do and a 10-year-old so it seemed to me just riddled with assumptions yeah so the more i started looking into this literature the more i thought but there is an essential set of assumptions here that don't seem to be being questioned so we have a system of knowledge that's built on very faulty and very suspect assumptions with no empirical anchors and that rely pretty entirely on the subjectivity of the diagnoser and the systems that we have created so we've been busy creating a construct mm-hmm. and as you mentioned earlier the 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 thing about the scientific method is that the scientific method is a particular epistemology if you like it is not the only way of gathering knowledge there are different ways but the scientific method has merit when you're gathering knowledge that relates to things that you can measure in some way beyond the that exists externally in the material world beyond just your imagination depends on the concept of the null hypothesis certainly in medicine it does and the null hypothesis means you 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 make a hypothesis for example there is a condition that is caused by an abnormal development of the nervous system that is genetic in nature so that could be your hypothesis but you must start, as a scientist you must start by assuming your hypothesis is incorrect and your research then needs to prove 
that the null hypothesis cannot stand. In other words, that the assumption that the hypothesis is incorrect is broken. And you don't need to do it with just one person. You need several teams, if you've generated a hypothesis, to test your hypothesis independently, because there's all sorts of factors. So science is really based on that idea of skepticism and critical thinking and not accepting things at face value. But here we have ADHD. And I mean, I've been looking at the evidence for years. I've summarized it in all sorts of articles. And the shorthand of that evidence is there is no genes specific to ADHD, no genetic loading, and there is no identifiable chemical imbalances or chemical lack. There is no identifiable characteristic neuroanatomical differences. So the whole thing falls apart. When you take a strictly scientific approach to this, the null hypothesis stands. There, this is not a neurodevelopmental genetic disorder. Mm. It is a creation. It is a creation with enormous consequences. And the problem is when we don't have empirical anchors and we don't have ways of assessing caseness that goes beyond, it becomes very vulnerable to what I call the elastic band effect. The concept can expand and expand and take up different, and that's exactly what's happened. ADHD, particularly because it has this idea that there is a specific treatment for it, has expanded. It's expanded within countries, expanded in different countries. It's expanded from childhood to adulthood. Mm-hmm. Its criteria have expanded. And it's just, such, it's just become institutionalized an enormous money spinner. And it's not even scientific. Health is so much more than a number on a scale. It is about living your best life with the people you love, enjoying every moment that you're alive. Noom understands this. It is different from other health-based programs available on the market. It uses psychology to help you understand your eating habits and learn how to make healthier choices every day. I find the app's quick daily lessons super helpful and have learned so much about the relationship between what I eat and my health, which has really helped me enjoy this holiday season. I also think it's great that you get to choose your level of support from five-minute daily check-ins to personal coaching. Noom is based on scientific principles like cognitive behavioral therapy to help you understand your relationship with food. It is designed to help you be your best self, not fit into someone else's mold, which is why all daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. I also love that it's a flexible program focusing on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at noom.com slash drleaf. That's n-o-o-m dot com slash drleaf to sign up for your trial today. And check out Noom's first ever book, The Noom Mindset, a deep dive into the psychology of behavior change. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. The link and details will be in the show notes. Sammy, it's just the way you laid out in your book and your research papers is is incredibly important for parents and for teachers and everyone to to read and study. So to do justice to this, we we are going to do a part two. And that part two, I wanted to lay this foundation and we'll do part two 
people will be able to go straight into part two. And in that, I want to really explore this because the lies that have been told and the implications and consequences, I saw this person in my practice, which is why I've continued to do research as well on the non-pharmacological, the truth, et cetera, et cetera, behind this. But your expertise is, is, imper- is just absolutely imperative for people to hear. So on that basis, I, we've just started the conversation. Honestly, I could listen yeah. to you for days and days and days. Sammy, this is the foundation that you've laid now is so important that we now transition into part two. So I encourage all the viewers and all the listeners to make sure that you listen to part two. I, make, I, I encourage you all to go and get Sammy Tamimi's book, Insane Medicine, and find out as much as you can. We'll put all the links in the show notes and where you can find out more and prepare and go into part two because this is one of the most important things. Everything we talk about on this podcast is important, but what you're sharing with you know this that you shared today and what we're going to share is imperative because it's affecting our next generations and what it's looking like for our next generations is not very good. When we have something that is not scientific, being treated as though it is scientific, the null hypothesis was not rejected, it was never even proved, it was never, there was not even science behind it, it was just basically accepted without any kind of research, if that's the right way of saying it. Never got it. past first base. Never part exactly. Yet something that's not gone past first base has become an institutionalized as though it is a gospel truth and it is the furthest thing from it. So we've it's a travesty. And we, we have to discover that detail, dive into this in much in so much more detail. So I want to thank you for laying this beautiful foundation that's given us a very good understanding of the difference between a description and a diagnosis and laid the foundation for ADHD having no scientific foundation as being something that's manufactured. And I'm incredibly excited to go and dive into this deeper to inform and enlighten people. Is there anything that you would like to just cast a a pearl of wisdom to kind of wrap up what we've said today in preparation for part two? I don't have any particular pearls of wisdom, but I hope it's helped unpack that the systems we've created is so loaded with unfounded assumptions that once you take start looking at these assumptions, the whole rotten frameworks and paradigm we've created just falls down like a house of cards. Totally. That's such a great way of putting it. I mean, I know you've commented on the, honestly, in America, just saying it even makes me feel anxious to the whole concept of pediatric bipolar as well which is another whole area just how it's spreading now from one thing to the next and it's just and medicalizing talking even about children in the womb as having these problems and two-year-olds having pediatric bipolar. it's just things that's gone beyond it's gone it's got dangerous with tremendous implications so it is a house card that's falling down and it's a serious subject but there is hope and you offer that in your books in your materials I offered yeah. in, in this podcast too. So it's not just doom and gloom, but we have to know what we're dealing with so that we, we bring awareness to parents, to teachers, that we change our frameworks and, and re- recognize the consequences so that we can actually go to the correct narrative, which is actually hopeful. I mean, there is hope through this. Absolutely. But we can't get through it if we get stuck yeah. in, this, in this sort of quagmire of, of incorrect thinking. Yeah. yeah. So thank, thank you. you so much for joining me today. It's been absolutely enlightening and incredible and i just cannot wait for our next discussion and thank you for what you do and all the incredible oh. research and publications and how you're changing this whole world and helping to free children adults from from a from a lie basically so thank you so much and i look forward to our next discussion i look forward to it too 
I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leith. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.